Dear church family, can you face hell alone? Can you face hell alone? Or let me put it to you another way. What would happen to you if today you alone came face to face with God and with eternity and with hell itself? What would you do? Can you face hell alone? What would happen if God tonight drew back the curtains of eternity and all the world stood before him in all of his justice and his holiness and also his wrath against sin? Could you, could they stand before God alone? Would you be able to stand at all? The answer to that question is obvious. No. There is only one man. There is only one man who can stand alone before the justice and the wrath of God. And his name is Jesus Christ, our mediator. And that is where our catechism in Lord's Day 6 Questions 16 and 17 takes us this evening. Last Lord's Day, we spoke about appointing forward to this mediator. The clouds we spoke of were beginning to roll back. The night was beginning to leave and the sun was beginning to rise upon this mediator. But now we come to dealing with Jesus Christ, our mediator himself. And this Lord's Day asks several extremely important questions about this mediator. Question 16 asks this question. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot Satisfy for others. Question 17. Why must he in one person be also very God? Answer. That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. And if you divide those two questions up, you come up with these three major parts of who this mediator must be. He must be a man. That's our first point. He must be a perfectly righteous man. And he must also be very God, God himself. He must be a man. He must be a perfectly righteous man. And he must also be God himself. This is the mediator that we must have if we wish to stand before God on that last great day. Alone we can't stand, but in this mediator we can stand and we will stand. 
But before we come to this doctrine, the doctrine that's found in these two questions, we need to answer a basic question. And that is, what is a mediator? I've been using the word, but what is a mediator? Children, do you know what a mediator is? It's a bigger word. What's a mediator? A mediator, most simply, is someone who stands between two people to bring peace. He stands between two people or two parties to bring peace. Children, that means that if you have friends who are fighting or arguing on the school playground or at home, maybe siblings, and you gently stand between them and try to calm the argument or the fight down, you are being a mediator. Or in the business world, if there's two parties who are coming to a court of law to sue one another, a mediator is someone who comes between these two parties that are fighting at war and he attempts to bring peace. He attempts to bring reconciliation to the parties. That's what a mediator does. He brings peace. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ does for us as our mediator. He is the second person of the Trinity who on behalf of God took upon himself flesh to stand between a just God and a sinful man to make them one, to to reconcile them, to bring peace. You can picture this mediation of Christ in this way. Before the triune God in heaven, he lifts up his nail-pierced hands as a sign and and an evidence that the price has been paid. He brings away, he takes away the wrath of God through that. But then he also looks towards heaven and he raises his hands towards his people, those same hands, and he blesses them with his blessing of peace. Peace between God and man. Peace between a just God and a sinful man. But that leaves the all-important question. How? How could the second person of the triune God become our mediator? What happened that allowed him to be our go-between, between the justice of God and our sin? What happened? Well, the first thing that had to happen is that Christ, the Son of God, had to become man. God had to become man to stand between the justice of God and the sin of man. And Hebrews 2 verse 14, which we read earlier, describes that dynamic this way. If you have your Bibles open, please also follow along. For as much then as the children, that's speaking about us, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's speaking about our human nature, 
So for as much then as we are partakers of human nature, he, speaking of Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. The same what? The same human nature. The same flesh and blood. Why? That through death, his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, in order to destroy death, in order to destroy the root of death, the fountain of death, the devil, Christ had to take upon himself our flesh and blood. Why? Because God cannot die. God cannot die. God is life. If God could die, he would not be God. He cannot die. And so in order for Christ to become our mediator, he had to take upon himself our flesh and blood. Mortal flesh and blood. But why, we ask, did he have to die? Well, we know the answer. Because the wages of sin is death. And as Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of life, is no remission of sins. And so the eternal God had to become man in order to die and pay for our sins. Human blood, human blood had to be shed for our human sins. A human body had to be crucified up on the cross to redeem our human bodies. A human soul had to experience the forsakenness of God that we with human souls might never be forsaken. Or to summarize that all, human life, life, human life had to die in order that we might never die. God had to become man that he might be our mediator. And if you go back to that same chapter, Hebrews 2, notice how the author proceeds in verse 15. Notice how he continues. Verse 14, we read this. He also himself likewise took part of the same, so that's the same human nature, that, in order that, that word there is a purpose clause, in order that, through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, but that's not the only thing. And, this is the second part of the purpose clause, deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, Christ destroyed the devil. He destroyed death for us. He did it for us. To release us from the chains that bound us to death. To deliver us from the bondage of death. Congregation, this is a beautiful reality. A wonderful reality. For all of us here today, if we are in Christ, it's a wonderful reality because Christ has destroyed death for us. He has become the resurrection power for us. If one day we die, as we will die, Christ will become the resurrection power that will eternally raise us up from death, never to die again. That 
is a wonderful truth, and you know that. Whenever we partake of sicknesses, whenever we have serious diseases, whenever a loved one dies, we know how precious it is that Christ has and will deliver us from death. But it's also a wonderful doctrine even for those who aren't in Christ here tonight. Why? Because Christ freely offers himself as this one who takes death, who destroys death to us. A free gift. You know, there were searches done in the olden days for the fountain of life. The fountain of life. People would travel from all over to find that fountain of life. They wanted to live forever. But they never found it. But here in the gospel, we have the fountain of life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What an amazing wonder for all of us here today. And we should also notice that this story of Christ, as he comes from heaven, becomes a man, suffers a life of trial and tribulation and dies upon the cross to rescue us from the devil, this is a perfectly fitting story for all of us here today. Children, I don't know about you. When I was young, when I was many of your age, I remember loving to read those stories from all over history about these heroic rescues of some person by another person. A person who is in mortal danger and just in the nick of time they are rescued. And your heart thrills when you read of these stories. But here we have the story above all stories. The story of the eternal God giving up everything to rescue weak and sinful sinners. We can put it this way that there's no story in all of human history, even if you search through all the libraries in our cities, in our countries, in this world, and you found all the amazing stories of sacrifice and love and courage, there would be no story more amazing than this story of a God who would become man to become a mediator for us. Paul summarizes this story in Romans 5 like this. He says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. That's all of our stories often, isn't it? But how does he finish? But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can say in all seriousness, can't we, that this book, this Bible, is the greatest love story ever written. And I know people say that tritely sometimes, but it truly is. It truly is the most wonderful love story in all of human history. That God would become man to die for sinners. And this ought to waken our hearts. This God ought to put into our hearts a song of praise, a song of joy, 
A song that wants to ascend up into the throne room of heaven to praise our God. You know, sometimes when we read these other stories of sacrifice, we get touched, don't we, in our hearts. Some of us are even moved to tears when we read some of these stories. We can't believe the love that would lead someone to sacrifice so greatly. But are we moved in our hearts? Are we touched in our hearts by what our God has done for us? Does it go to the core of who we are? Does it put a smile on our face? Does it bring tears sometimes to our eyes? Are we amazed by the love of God for us in this mediator? And if we are amazed by it, do we sing about it? You know, it's interesting as you go through scripture, especially the Psalms, of course, the scripture is full of commands to sing to the Lord, to sing praises to the Lord, to sing of his goodness in all the earth, to sing of his glory, of what a wonderful God he is. In Psalm 98 verse 4, it even says, make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. A command to sing with all of our hearts to this God, this remarkable God of love. And so can I ask us today, do we do this? Do we sing with all of our hearts? Do we sing loudly to God? Do we sing in our cars? Do we sing in our homes with our families, with our children? Do we sing loudly in our churches Do we we long that the world would know that we have a good God? A God who is so good that he would send his only begotten son to die for us? This is worth singing about. This is worth getting excited about. And if you aren't doing this here today, can I encourage you to do this? To sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord for all of his goodness to us. Charles Wesley wrote these words that we sing sometimes. Let these words be in your heart. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so the wages of sin is death. That is sure. But also the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A gift of undeserved, unparalleled love. But what a road. What a road. Jesus Christ, our mediator, had to travel to show this love to us. What a road. Not only did he have to take to himself a weak and limited nature, weak flesh and blood. Not only did he have to be born into this miserable, sin-filled world, but he also, as our second point speaks about, exercised himself to the extreme of the extremes to keep the law of God. To become a righteous man. Not just a man, but a righteous man for us. If Christ had failed. If Christ had failed to keep 
one minute law. He could never have been our mediator. He would have failed. If he, if he had not paid for one sin on that cross, if he had shrugged off one part of his burden on the cross, he could never have been our mediator. He would have been immediately disqualified. God would not have raised him from the dead. He would not have declared him righteous through that resurrection. And so for Christ, there was no slipping. Not even one slip. Not one white lie. Not one moment of raising the voice in frustration towards another. Not one feeling of bitterness, however small, in his heart towards his, at times, very, very frustrating disciples. Not one momentary glance at sin. Not one momentary indulgence in an even slightly covetous thought. Nothing. No law-breaking. Complete perfection. He had to do it. And he did it. He did it. He kept the law perfectly. He was a perfect lamb. He was spotless. He was pure. And as I just said, God gave his stamp of approval upon that purity when he raised him from the dead. All other men lay in their graves. But Christ was raised up from the dead, vindicated by the Father. He did it perfectly. And maybe the most wonderful part about it all is that he didn't just keep the law perfectly like a stoic. He didn't just fulfill every single minutia of the law because he had to. He wasn't just grinning and bearing it like we speak of sometimes. He delighted. He delighted to keep the law of God. Psalm 40. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And so every act of Christ where he Resisted temptation. Every, every temptation he put away from himself was an act of supreme love. Love for God. Love for us, his bride. He did it with a smile. For the joy that was set before him. Filled with sorrow, a man of sorrows. But also joy looking ahead to being with his bride in eternity. What a savior. What a God. What a man we have in Jesus Christ. When we look at ourselves, we sometimes don't even know where to begin with the lack of love we have in our hearts towards others. Sure, we put covers on it sometimes, but by nature we are so unloving. But Christ, Christ, what a love that man had. To compare our love to Christ's love would be like to hold a a weak flashlight with an almost dead battery up to the light of the noonday sun. It's not even visible. Christ's love is a wonderful, wonderful love. It's a love that's better experienced than attempted to put into words. 
It's a love that's really better sung about than debated about. It's a love that's better received into our hearts by faith than argued about in our heads. It's a love that we must have if we would stand before God alone on that last great day. One hymn writer described the love of God in this way. He said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And as we think about this, we need to recognize that we are only now just speaking about the law-keeping of Christ. We haven't even spoken about that final price upon the cross. But upon that cross, consider for a moment the love that shone forth from him towards us. On that cross, all of the sins of the human race, rather all of the sins of those who were Christ's, was uncovered before the world. If we are in Christ, every single one of our sins was laid bare, was exposed, was written upon Jesus Christ for all the world to see. Every moment of his suffering was a manifestation of our deep and bitter sin against God. Every evil thought, every foolish word, every sinful sin was laid upon his shoulders such that every pain that coursed through his body was a manifestation of our sins. Every tremor that shook his soul as he experienced the forsakenness of God was a picture of the deepness and the darkness of our sin and our iniquity. There wasn't one sin of God's people that was left from Jesus Christ on that day. It was all there. Pressed into him. For us. Sinners. What wondrous love is this? Oh my soul. What wondrous love is this? Oh my soul. Friends, if we could understand something. Just even a little bit. Of the love of God in Jesus Christ, we would fall upon our faces. And then we would stay there for a very long time. The love of God is beyond our comprehension. It is so great. It outshines all other loves in this world. And it's a love we must have if we would stand before God on that last day. And so can I ask you this question? Why not accept that love as it shines towards us in Christ Jesus? Why not accept it? 
What do we have to lose? We have a hell if we refuse it. But we have a glorious heaven filled with love if we with simple childlike faith accept it and go out and live in obedience to him. And if you will not accept it, can you imagine on that last day this being said about you? He came unto his own and his own received him not. What sad words. What horrible words. Why would we do that? He came unto his own. He comes to you. In the gospel. But his own received him not. Or think of this. What if Jesus had to say this about you? Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often? Week by week, Sunday service by Sunday service, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? And ye would not. You would not. You would not have Christ. Or... What if Christ said this about you? As Stephen said to those listening to him, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. Are you resisting the Holy Ghost? Is the Holy Spirit striving with you even through the preaching of the gospel, even through the word of the Spirit? And are you resisting? Are you resisting him? What a thought that one day Christ could say that about you. But what a good thing. What a glorious thing. What a wonderful thing. If you capitulate you lay down your pride. You open your hands and you say, Lord, that's right. I, I am a sinner. I do need this mediator. I cannot stand before God on the last day alone. Lord, save me. Lord, be my mediator. And he will. Then he will. He will become your mediator and you will not stand alone on that last day. That will be a good thing. That will be a very, very good thing. And if we have done that here this afternoon, we go back to Hebrews chapter 2 where we read, we don't have to live in bondage to the fear of death anymore. We don't. We are freed. We are freed from bondage to death. That means that there's no need to live as if we are in a cloud if we are actually living in the sunshine. There's no need to live as if we're outside in the cold if the fire of God's Spirit is truly in our hearts. We do not need to live with fear. We live with confidence in Jesus Christ who purchased us and who will also carry us safely home to be with Him.
He who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. But this love of God, this wonderful love of God of which we've been speaking also is showcased beautifully in this last point. And that is this, that it was not simply a man. It was not simply a man who hung upon the cross at Calvary. It was not simply a man. If it were just a man, a finite man, he would have been destroyed, demolished, consumed by the wrath of God. There was nothing more foolish in all the world than for a man, a finite, weak man, to stand before the wrath of the living God. Jesus Christ could not have been just a man. He would have been crushed. But then who is he? He's our flesh and blood. But what else is he? Question 14 puts it very well. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. So who is he? We know the answer. He is also God. Not only a man, but also God. Not only human, but also divine. Not only the firstborn among many brethren, but also the firstborn of God himself. That is our mediator. And so we find in Christ, both someone who can pay for our sins in human flesh and blood, but also one who is God himself and who can bear up under and sustain the eternal and the infinite wrath of God for sin. And so that means, doesn't it, that when Christ cried out upon the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not just a man crying out those words. It was the God-man crying out those words. Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, upon the cross for us. And Martin Luther, when meditating upon this, has been famously known to say this, God forsaken of God. Who can know it? Who can understand it? And the answer is no one can. No one can understand this. In fact, this is really where we reach the end of human language. We reach the limit of human language. We're out of our depths as finite humans with a finite language. This is where we stop trying to explain things. And we bow down in worship before our God. One day in heaven, if we're in Christ, we will spend eternity wondering at this. That God could become man and that it was the God-man upon the cross. That is a glorious and a wonderful And as we come to a close of our sermon this afternoon, the question comes to us. Will we not worship this God? Will we not worship him? Will we not bow down and praise him? Will we not exercise ourselves in praise 
as Christ exercised himself for us. If we aren't worshiping here, if we aren't worshiping at Christ's feet, where are we going to worship? Are we going to worship our money, our pleasures, our looks, our job, our family, our church? Those are all idols. It's all idolatry. It's blasphemy. Worship God. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's close in prayer.